Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Health Tech Pigeon podcast, bringing you the top health tech news stories and analysis every single week. I'm James and with me today I have Jess, Jessica and Henry from the Somex team and we have a very special guest with us today. We have Kit Latham and he is the founder of Credentially. Um, so Kit, first of all, welcome. How are you doing? I'm, I'm good, thanks James. Yeah, it's good to be here. Excellent. Glad to have you. Tell us a bit about yourself, Kit, and uh, tell us a bit about Credentially. Sure. So Credentially is SaaS to automate pre-employment checks, ongoing compliance, and anything you need to do to get a clinician ready to work from clicking on a job ad. I was an A&E doctor, and I had a big problem with how long it took to complete these checks. And so in 2016, I founded Credentially with my co-founder. So we worked nationally with NHS England. We also worked for people like uh, Teladoc. Um, So that's a bit about what we do. Awesome. Yeah, glad to have you on board, man. Should be fun one today. And yeah, what a problem you're solving. I think we all as clinicians know that one of uh, starting a job and having all of that. Well, let's go, you know, the induction process of just yeah. one pain after another that just takes, I mean, you've worked yeah. in a and you've probably worked in a few of them. So I mean, I did an F3 year, like, you know, locoming and multiple and mm. like starting all of your rotations in F1 and F2 and a new place and new thing. And it's just, Oh my goodness, it is just annoying, right? the worst, the worst. But you guys speed all of that up, so good for you. And thank you for doing so. You're doing a heck of a service. And also, in the face of a work- workforce crisis, right, in, a, in, the, in the face mm. of struggling to recruit, struggling to retain, you know, companies mm. like yours doing an incredible job, mate, so thank you. Thanks. I think it's something that employee employers can really look to optimize. It's hard to get people in that the top of that funnel, uh, but if it takes you three to six months to process them, you're going to lose over sixty percent. You know, pushing seventy percent is is the average. So if you bring that down to a few days, so on average with our system, it takes five days versus or three to six months. It means that with the same candidate budget, you just get many more candidates through the system, and they're also a bit less annoyed with you by the time they start working because it's not been six <laughs> months. So another massive benefit because as I'm talking about now, just moaning about the processes I've been through and I do not look favorably upon those organizations, but had I've gone through a good one, perhaps I might. Why don't we get into it? I know we've got a lot to talk about today. Let's go with story number one. So story number one this week, I'm just going to, I'm just going to read the headline. Biotech co-founder facing murder for hire charges accused of fabricating data what a what a headline and strangely putting those two things up next to each other uh wall street journal bit of investigative journalism henry tell us what on earth is going on here yeah co-founder of um an la biotech firm called enochian biosciences uh, has been arrested in connection with the murder of a man in vermont in 2018 he and his co-conspirators who are the ones who are alleged to have carried out this attack, kidnapped one of the other members of the company and then several days later allegedly murdered him and dumped his body on a snowbank. The motive wow. apparently remains unknown, but yeah. I don't really know what to say on this. I think it's just it's just so jarring to see that a story of this magnitude enters biotech or health tech. I think there's plenty of stories where co-founders fall out or you know there might be the odd lawsuit against this or that for something financial but 
for someone to be in federal custody on charges of conspiring to commission a murder, I mean, this is this is proper drama and outrageously terrible, by the way. Someone has died, which is obviously terrible, but outrageous drama and another one in our sector. I mean, we had Theranos, but to now have this, I mean, yeah. Theranos definitely sticks in my mind as sort of pretty eye-watering fraud that kind of sticks in my head as sort of our industry's Enron. This this story is obviously a bit darker. The perpetration of big frauds in tech is uh, concerning whenever it happens. And I think this, I don't know as much about the fabrication of data that, you know, there's not, not much that's been published so far, but, you know, with seeing what's happening in the, the crypto space now that seems to be as a result of some skullduggery as well. I think it's concerning, you know, in, in startups, there's a tension between having a vision for the future that you can communicate simply and that, uh, you know, investors and people that work for you can can wholeheartedly believe in, but also needing to to match that with the fact that when you start, you you know, you're starting typically from nowhere or from close to nowhere. And, you know, you've got to build towards that. And I think every story like this or every story that involves kind of fabrication or, you know, deliberate manipulation, duplicity, lies, kind of makes it harder for people to believe in those stories. I think people still want to believe in, in the future and people that can build the future. But uh, yeah, I think it's uh, of concern. I completely agree with you. And actually, one thing that comes to my mind there is is the word confidence and trust and especially the word confidence because that's attached to you know financial markets and things like that but when when these things happen and fraud comes out and is proved it's showing our sector in a really bad light it's showing that for people that might want to invest in our sector that these things can happen and that therefore affects confidence and that therefore drives the whole ecosystem downwards it's just not good and clearly a deep and dark story that yeah heck of an article that in the wall street journal for people to read yeah you can find that in the newsletter so click on that if you want to learn more On to story number two this week. So, exploring 2022 digital health M&A trends. Kit, what is going on? Are we seeing the great consolidation? Are there lots of M&A activities going on? You tell me. Yeah, so I think there's been a uh, slowdown in digital health investment. Um, I think, broadly speaking, been a slowdown for most companies that are, you know, from Series B getting on to IPO uh, as a result of inflation and the rise in interest rates, meaning that, you know, capital availability is a bit less than it was, the decrease in the the equities market. The positive, I suppose, has been that there's been uh, an increase in digital health M&A. So uh, it's uh, come back up from a decrease so you know we're, we're getting it, it's not that it's just increased it's it decreased but then it's it's increasing again but you know it, it when there's lots of things flashing red this seems to be some positive news there's companies i suppose that are looking to acquire other businesses for you know consolidation to to kind of grow 
by acquiring that company's revenues and customer relationships. Um, as companies that are looking to, to buy other digital health tech startups that can complement their core offerings. So, you know, if, if they're offering something uh, in diagnostics or therapeutics that are buying parts of their technology stack or things that are complementary um, to get efficiencies, there's sort of buy and build. So companies are purchasing other tech that has complementary functions so uh, they can offer a more comprehensive solution to their patients. So, you know, this is people going up and down the vertical if they were just offering, say, diagnostics, maybe they're, they're doing more in the reporting, then maybe they're trying to automate some of that reporting. Um, you know, it's thinking about that kind of vertical integration, giving patients or, or consumers uh, all their B2B clients everything that they need as much as possible once they own that relationship. And then there's sort of disruptive innovation. So companies that are being acquired to completely transform the services that's that are provided by the acquiree. So um, and also I suppose doing this to protect yourself if you're the a company that's selling the fastest horses and you see you know Henry Ford coming along with a petrol powered motor car, it's important that you buy that company before you find yourself competing by selling the fastest horses. So a bit about what's going on. Absolutely. I don't know what your thoughts on this are, guys, but yeah, I I think it's it's good, right? More MA activity. Exits. Digital health and exits. This is something that's come up uh for a for a while. The definitions are important here about like what really is digital health, what health tech, da da da. But but mm. the point remains about digital health and exits and this point about have there really been that many digital health exits is it really attractive to build a digital health company with the exit opportunities available and acquisition acquihire MA seems to be like the predominant i can't name i couldn't even count on one hand really digital health ipo maybe i could get to one hand of digital health ipos perhaps i'm ignoring a heck of a lot there but um i think it is good to see a path to exit for digital health companies and if MA is increasing then i think that's all the better particularly for early stage development i don't know what do you think what does everyone else think there were quite a few ipos last there were like 12 health tech ipos in 2021 alone and then prior to that you got like signify physitrack doximity we do okay as an industry when you compare us to comparably sized markets i think i don't think we're low on ipos i'll put it that way i think the strategic acquisition is a strong channel for digital health because, you know, as, as the article says, there's often good reasons for digital health companies to be purchased. And health tech is an industry that often is disrupting, uh, you know, very entrenched ways of working. And so if you're a larger business that can acquire something that's hot and relatively cheap in the grand scheme of things, if you're, you know, worth sort of a, a billion um, as a provider of um, you know, inpatient services or therapeutics or what have you, then yeah, I think MA is going to be a, a solid channel for um, for exits for for founders. I think as well, it, the broader slowdowns in the market and reducing capital availability has also come with reducing valuations compared to ARR multiples. And we've seen some pretty eye watering ones in the space. Um, you know. Uh, Babylon, I think, raised it, what was it, four and a half thousand times um, their earnings. And wow. so, and it, it maybe that that's entirely entirely justified. I wasn't, wasn't close to that deal. But when those earning multiples are very high, M&A just becomes unaffordable f- for the acquirers. And also when 
the path to IPO is very clear and there's lots of funding to get you to that uh, stage, which you know typically requires multiple rounds of, of funding mm-hmm. and raising quite a lot. Then as a founder, you'll think, oh, you know, I can IPO, that's great. As soon as that capital availability and that pathway forward isn't as easy, then, you know, you start to think a bit more about it, I suppose, when an acquirer comes and knocks on your door and says, hey, would you like a wheelbarrow full of money and to, you know, <laughs> finish this difficult journey a bit easier than, than with an IPO? So, um, yeah, I think it's it's good that that remains a, a viable option for um, founders for their investors and, and employees. Awesome. There we go. Digital health MA is on the up. So, story number three this week Lever Clinic fundraises three million, three million pounds, that is, for the UK's first digital chronic pain platform. Jess, what is going on? Yeah, so um, Lever have announced that they've now got £3 million um, to scale the delivery of digital solutions for chronic pain patients and also to accelerate innovation in medical cannabis therapeutics. Um, and the lead investor in this round was a guy called Justin Hartfield, um, and he founded Weed Maps, which is a US-based tech company that served the cannabis industry, and this is his office's first investment into the UK. Um, and of course, in the UK, uh, medical use of cannabis, um, when it's been prescribed by a doctor, was legalised in 2018. Um, so there's been a lot of activity over here recently, figuring out like what the best way, most impactful way um, to get that to patients who need it most. So yeah, look, what Lever Clinic do, they're the UK's first online facility for patients living with chronic pain. Um, so the patients who access Lever Clinic, they can use the platform to get physiotherapist support, to learn about pain management techniques, um, medication reviews from doctors and they can get prescriptions as well um, delivered straight to their door. And I guess kind of why this is important and why this matters is that a quarter of adults in the UK are living with a pain condition um, that's lasted over three months and pain costs the UK economy more than cancer and heart disease and almost as much as diabetes and obesity, which is like a shockingly large figure. Um, and at the moment, there's a real lack of personalized treatment options for these pain patients. It can be really hard for them to access the support that they need. Um, and in terms of medication, it's been well publicized, the problems with prescribing opioids. Um, so, yeah, Lever are going to use this money to try and advance and scale the, the, the alternative solutions that they're offering um, to try and um, address this silent epidemic, which is what the pain crisis in the UK has been called. Cannabis for chronic pain. Kit, you're an ex-clinician as well. What are you, what, interested, what are your thoughts on this? You know, whatever works, right? It beats uh, being knocked over the head with a mallet. I think, I, I don't know if any of you saw that sicko um, show who was talking about uh, Purdue Pharma and the terrible problems that have been caused through uh, opiate addiction with OxyContin uh, in the States, which fortunately... OxyContin was never prescribed anywhere near as widely in the UK as it was in, in the US. You know, it's typically associated with very severe pain and, and often cancer patients. But the harm of people being given prescription opiates that they get addicted to, uh, that then mean that they end up, you know, often taking heroin or fentanyl or fentanyl containing products, which has led to sort of hundreds of thousands of deaths in the US. Anything that can help patients to not be on that sort of pretty dark and scary treadmill is a, a very positive thing. I haven't really been close to the research in this, but I know 
cannabis has been used for a while to relieve the symptoms of, of pain and if it's uh, a way of doing that because yeah relieving pain is difficult and to do it in a way that doesn't involve things that you're likely to get addicted to we, we don't have a huge amount of options at the moment so um yeah I, I think it's it's potentially a good thing i'm cautiously optimistic uh, but as we've mm. talked about i suppose um i kind of temper that with hoping that everything has been checked and that this isn't going to come out as something that causes problems down the line in a few years, but I'm sure it's not. I'm still an optimist. Yeah. It's a, it's an interesting one. As you described that treadmill or that sort of vicious cycle, isn't it with chronic pain? Mm. Um, and it really does require, it's seemingly require. I've done pain clinics and stuff when I was doing anesthetics and it's, it, it's a, it's a, it's a really nasty cycle to get in with chronic pain. Mm. And, Tachyphylaxis, I believe it's called, where you just need increasing doses of the same drug to produce the same effect. Mm. And so you keep ending up needing to take more and more and more of opiates in order mm. to just get the same effect without the root cause being treated. And so it is a vicious cycle that, that you are just, you know, creating, giving yourself more and more drug, therefore more and more side effects and all, all that all that type of stuff. It can be, it can be really really nasty and people end up and there's a few there's a few documentaries in and around all the platforms at the moment about this type of thing and it yeah it's it's deeply unpleasant and, and you're absolutely right whatever works and i think there is obviously a stigma uh somewhat attached to this still i think that's completely fair to say you know um with it with it being connotations of marijuana and recreational use and all that sort of stuff but I'm I'm completely in agreement with you. Whatever works, and for for companies now that are doing this, I think it is a really really interesting space. I think with the increasing destigmatization of these types of drugs, and us being able to see them for the effects that they can have, cannabis might be one. You might psilocybin and and. I was going to say mushrooms, but psilocybin more <laughs> yeah. uh, is obviously another one that people are doing research on and that's that, that side of things mm-hmm. so for um, mental health conditions and anxiety and depression and stuff like that. So these clinical trials are ongoing. And it's uh, to be honest, for me, with the Levy Clinic and stuff, it's great to see a product to market and actual impact being made. Um, I think that's, mm-hmm. it's just really, really positive, I think, something like this. And you're right, there's learning to do. Of course, there's learning to do. And of course, we don't want the negative things to come in and there'll have to be checks and balances to make sure that they don't. But it it really, I don't know, I, I do feel optimistic about this stuff because having been in pain clinics and seen the, the things, you know, the lengths that people will go to to just escape this, they don't want to be in that cycle. And part of it, unfortunately, is that mentally you can end up thinking you do want to be in that cycle with drug-seeking behavior and all sorts. You just want the drug and just want the drug because you just don't want to be in the pain. And I, I just think it's so important that we're able to explore these different um, different treatments. And I know that at Somex we've got like bioelectronics companies that are doing this and stuff as well. Like different ways of addressing chronic pain, I think is uh, I think is incredibly important. Just to I suppose um, switch it and, and put an investor's head on as well. I think chronic pain is a good target for someone that's looking to build a, a company because you have a. a something that you can provide benefit for over a, a long period of time. Um, you know, I think everyone, unless they're deeply cynical, would hope that patient's pain can be cured. But where that isn't possible, you can see why chronic pain conditions would attract more investment than some of the one-off curative stuff. I don't, there's been some really interesting work out of Johns Hopkins using things like psilocybin to treat 
pretty, you know, on a one-off basis, things like depression, uh, alcohol addiction, PTSD. Um, but for things where you're researching a cure, there's obviously less ability for you to commercialize that cure um, down the line to get a return on, on your investment, even if that's just for doing the research on something that's already existing in the marketplace rather than you having to develop a drug from scratch. So um, I think it's, I can see why investors um, are interested in these companies. Uh, I can see why people that want to help patients are interested because, you know, chronic pain is a massive burden on people's lives and it's something that dogs them for years. Um, and yeah, as you say, given the, the fairly poor alternative or, or paucity of alternatives that we have, you know, from non-steroidal anti-inflammatories that cause GI problems and, you know, and, and other problems and, and opiates that can cause addiction and um, that, that treadmill. Yeah, I think it's positive. Absolutely. Absolutely agree. So story number four this week, the 50 most active early stage health tech investors. So Sifted have come up with this uh, list of the top 50. These are the lists that everyone likes to see, right? Jessica, what's going on? Well, exactly that. I think first and foremost, kudos to Kai over at Sifted because I think this is an incredibly useful resource for anyone who is looking to A, understand the investment market in health tech at the moment, particularly at that early stage, but also especially for companies who are looking for their investment themselves, is such a good resource. I mean, it, it only goes into detail for kind of the, the top 10, but it really outlines the portfolio thesis, the the gender split, interestingly, of um, the investment teams um, and some recent investments as well. And so I found it really, really illuminating. And um, I think it's also really interesting to see the number of deals that some of these uh, VC firms have made. And actually, if you scroll down to the bottom, there's a list of the 450. And you can see the numbers that have been verified as much as possible of uh, early stage. Kind of, I think it's from around seed to series A, pushing towards series B, but that have been made this year. And I'd be interested to see actually how that differs from maybe last year, but we know that last year had a big boom. So perhaps 2020 and also how that aligns with um, like actual dollars, pounds invested. Um, that would be really interesting as well. But I think definitely be able to see the gender split. What was most interesting was that there were some funds that were asked for comment and did not provide and others that felt that they perhaps needed to justify a slightly unbalanced split. I won't name names, but it's a really interesting read, and I really recommend having a look at it. So yeah, great piece, as as usual, from Kai. And learn loads. What was also really interesting to see, actually, was the spread across Europe. Um, so I think, especially being in the UK, it's really easy to get caught up in thinking that, you know, the UK is the kind of hub, the epicentre of what's going on in health tech in Europe at the moment. But there was it's really spread right across Europe. There are a few in there from Barcelona, uh, Vienna. And also, interestingly, there, there were three different funds that are actually government initiatives. So there's, I think, Enterprise Ireland, Scottish Enterprise, and then the European Innovation Commission Fund as well. So, so it's really good to see, I think, a mix of VC funds and then government initiatives that are also putting money into these early stage startups as well. That was really encouraging. And interestingly, why Combinator feature in there? And I think that's in part down to seeing, you know, a decent number of 
European companies getting onto the Y Combinator program and obviously the swell of uh, funding that Y Combinator have given this year. They, I think they increased it to is it half a million dollars or something, which is amazing. So I, I wouldn't have necessarily expected to see Y Combinator feature on a list like that in previous years. But um, yeah, it's awesome. So it is interesting to me this because Kai's brought out this one metric, the gender balance of the investment team. Why do you think that is? So I think when you consider that 93% of all VC investment dollars are awarded by men, you hear, well, there's data and anecdotally you hear about experiences of people who sit outside of that demographic that can often be faced with challenges with raising money right and the 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 numbers stack up it goes to show how much how little money and i can't remember i feel like it's maybe seven percent or something but seven percent of all of those investment dollars go to female founded startups and so i think if you're a founder about to raise money you want to consider who who are where who are the funds where you're, that you're going to have a rapport with that are going to get you and i think Seeing people, whether or not you're female, whether or not you're black, whether you're from an Asian background, I think seeing people on an investment panel that look like you, that you can find something that you identify with, makes it so much easier to build relationships. And I think where where you build relationships, you're more likely to have success. So I think it's that. And I don't think it's about like making things easy. I think it's about finding your people, finding people you have experiences in common with um, and who understand what you're talking about. I had a conversation just this week with Jess. We went to the um, Vantage MedTech series to deliver a workshop on communications and health tech. And one of the founders was from a um, a women's health startup where they basically have a uh, device that you insert into your vagina and it releases medication and she is having conversations with investors who when she says the word vagina they're squirming and that's really difficult when you're talking to people who are not a they're squirming at the product that you're trying to raise money for and so you're not being able to build a relationship and build a rapport because right from the off it's putting you off they don't get it they think it's icky so I think it's I think it's it's only one piece of data in that puzzle, but I think it's interesting and useful information if you're about to embark on a raise and you're having conversations with founders. I think yeah, I think that's that's perhaps the point I was trying to get to with the question, which is there's a there's a fuller story of representation, isn't there? that goes beyond just gender, as you've mentioned, with race and with lots of disability. There's age, there's lot, there's so much there. But clearly, there's low-hanging fruit in any of this stuff. And perhaps that's what that's the reason that, that Kai's gone into this, because clearly, as that anecdotal example that you've that you've mentioned would cause a clear and obvious big problem. And yeah, I I think it is part of a fuller story of representation. And it'd be interesting to do more lists, wouldn't it? with all of those things, um, all of those different things for representation uh, as a means of highlighting it, trying to improve it, perhaps. It can't be easy, though, in a world of finance and where perhaps it is male-dominated from bottom up, um, but 
there have to be role models higher up so that those going into it can see that and can see that that could be me and can see themselves in those situations to enable greater equality of opportunity because that's what we want really isn't it equality of opportunity right on to story number five this week october's (laughs) hottest seeds uh this is clearly one for henry how are we doing henry uh us versus fintech fintech usually wins let's be honest uh, but last month, fintech as an industry in the UK raised a pathetic <laughs> six million pounds, which they should be ashamed of, um, frankly. And health tech, being the superior industry, uh, raised twenty two million, which was great. And there were some really really cool raises. So everything from Blue Sky AI, who raised three point four million up in Nottingham, who are doing like face and voice analysis technology. I think we talked about it previously on the pod, where they can detect certain mental health conditions by analysing your voice and your face just like your mum can. Nola, or Noala, I don't know how to pronounce it. I think it's Noala, but they got 4 million euros, which is access to speech and language therapy, which is great. And it's really interesting to see money going into that industry because I feel like it is underrepresented when we talk about health tech. Um, Oco Health down here in Bristol, they got 2 million in pre-seed for um, eye health self-monitoring, which is great. And they are launching that in Germany first because clearly... (laughs) Germany has more eye problems. I don't know. Uh, Helios got 14 million and Day, who are the Guy Nye Health startup, the um, home screening kit, uh, got 11.5 million euros. Um, so lots of really, really exciting raises. Um, significantly better than FinTech, just to point that out again. Um, and I believe there is an army of MBA uh, graduate interns mopping up uh, a tidal wave of tears in Canary Wharf as we speak um, at their pathetic, pathetic attempts to raise money in October. As, as a health tech startup based in Canary Wharf, I agree with you that fintech companies should be embarrassed, frankly, to use any of the eateries <laughs> or even you know highways in Canary Wharf right now. I I don't think you should be allowed to eat if you only raise six million a month, think, let alone use an eatery. That's fair and uh, and proportionate. So yeah. <laughs> Oco Health, that's an interesting one. So launching in, in Germany, might that be something to do with Diga? Might that be something to do... Are they are they from Germany? They're from Bristol, aren't they? In fact, I think I've spoken to um, founder of Oco before. Yeah, they're Bristol-based, yeah. So I don't know, actually, whether it's to do with Diga. Diga being the, the sort of the compliance standards for, for Germany. I... I don't know how much compliance Oco's product would need, like how much regulation that would have to go through. It's essentially a VR kit that scans your... Well, it's the reimbursement framework, isn't it, mm. that Diga makes easy? But I don't know what the... To be fair, I don't know what their business model is either. Are they selling direct to German healthcare networks? Are they selling direct to care homes to patients themselves? Without knowing that, I, I would be guessing what they're, um, what they're doing in Germany. Maybe they just like Germany. It is nice this time of year. I think, and correct me if I'm wrong... But when you get approved by Diga, you basically get put onto a platform and it means that doctors can prescribe you or can prescribe a solution, um, much like a formulary for, for a medicine. So I think it works that way. And I guess then that then means that doctors are able to access that. Therefore, patients are able to access it too. But I might have totally butchered that explanation. Yeah, Diga, often called digital health fast track, but essentially that model, a new way to kind of regulate getting to market and getting reimbursed it has been looked at globally as well held up globally is is definitely something to look at for all countries has it worked is it good well clearly i mean there are plenty of companies that have got themselves onto diga and managed to get reimbursed across the country it's it's a really nice model and we've tried similar stuff in the uk with 
apps libraries and this type of thing. It's never well. We don't have a necessarily reimbursement model, do we? Because of our NHS structure, we don't have an apps library anymore. We either. don't have an apps library. All <laughs> the things have been tried. Says a lot about regulatory frameworks for medical devices that one that works is held up as like, wow, mm. isn't it revolutionary that someone's created a framework that works? I mean, I think this is why you see a lot of health tech businesses that launch in either veterinary medicine or they go to absolutely diagnostics uh, that they, they launch with pharma companies. So rather than having a diagnostic that's going to influence clinical management, they'll go and, and launch in pharma because there's a way they can get paid and because a diagnostics just used to influence a clinical trial rather than to actually influence the, the care of a patient. Um, it means they can be commercialized easier. But, you know, this access to capital and the the stages along the way where you can get capital as an early idea founder to bring something to market that can take, you know, seven, eight years, where in the case of therapeutics, the more ways that we can have founders to have access to that capital as they continue to hit the proof points, I think the more will be repaid in kind with amazingly therapeutics and diagnostics and health tech innovation. But I think the availability of capital really drives um, incentives for, for founders and it drives where they're likely to commercialize those products. So the harder we make it, the fewer and the less innovation that we'll have, um, and the easier we make it, the the healthier the sort of general I guess, environment for uh, health tech is going to be. I wonder what incentives there could be for investors, I suppose, or anyone investing in those companies to take a longer, like investors are obviously taking a longer term view, but how do we ensure that when you're saying, you know, it might take seven, eight years to get that product to market, health tech companies, when they say seven, eight years, it might be nine, it might be 10, it might might stretch out. How do we incentivize investors to be there for the long term of that journey, do you think? Do you think there's a, an easy answer to that? I think the people that look at this seriously and have exposure to it realize that it is harder to get into health tech. But once you're in, the market dynamics are extremely favorable. The barriers to competition are high, which means that whilst most companies say in software as a service are going to lose most of their operating margin over time in just fighting for keywords to acquire new customers and just customer acquisition costs becomes, you know, a really concerning metric. When you're in health tech and you get one of these frameworks and you get the regulatory acquisition that you need, there's a, a path for very sustainable, very positive um, revenue streams. And it's very hard for come, someone to come up behind you with a, you know, me too innovation and, you know, be the lift to your Uber, let's say. So I think it, Health tech quite attracts patient capital, which is sort of you know less of the boom and bust sort of flash in the pan West Coast VC model. You could argue so you know maybe more family offices um, that are investing you know money over a time span and they care about um, kind of how well that investment is going to do over time. Less of their sort of you know greater fool theory if we can we can sell this on. Um, and I think, yeah, people that have had one or two winners or that have seen one or two winners of, of companies that have done this and that are happy to, um, you know, take the risk. Because I think particularly for therapeutics, it can be risky to bring something to market. It takes a long period of time. It's not a pre foregone conclusion. It's not just like you do these things and in time you will be rewarded. There are things that you just have to determine. You don't know until you do the clinical trials or what have you, what the outcome is going to be. Um, I think I'd, as someone that's hopelessly biased, like to see governments 
uh, incentivizing more innovation in the sector because I think it benefits us all. You know, we're all patients at some point or another. And, you know, there's ways that you could do that. I think the SEIS and EIS framework in this country are very good at encouraging people to back early stage ventures in a way that reduces their um, income tax burden and is beneficial to, to the companies, meaning, you know, more early stage funding is available. There's a bit of a drought, I think, between, well, there's, there's EIS as well, I suppose, but what the government could do, I suppose, to think about uh, how you could incentivize maybe higher rate taxpayers or, or people that have capital um, available to deploy with something like an SEIS or EIS scheme, but, you know, maybe further up the chain. Again, as someone who's hopelessly biased, right, uh, I'd like to see that more capital availability of health tech startups. They've increased the SEIS threshold as well, haven't they, recently? And I think I think there has to be something centralised because I think people are naturally risk-averse to long-term like hyper long-term, I suppose, returns on investment, even though most investors know they're getting in for five, 10 years. If it's five, 10 years before you can get into the market and then it's the commercialization piece in a bear market, the desire to do that probably needs a little bit of a push from central government to make it work. Yeah, I'd hope as well, there's an argument that the broader market downturns in the public markets are going to affect early stage digital health and therapeutics and what have you less just because investors know, you know, market sentiment slightly to change up and down a few times over the course of seven to 10 years. And so if you're backing a you know, digital health or therapeutics company that has some promising tech and is solving a really big problem like chronic pain or, you know, uh, ophthalmology or what have you, then, you know, maybe you're, you're just as gung-ho now as you ever were. So our final story today, oh, this is an interesting one. Uh, Spotify founder Daniel Ek has a secret health tech startup kit. Have you had a read of this one? Yeah, I mean, the first thing that occurred to me for this is that he's going to be paying radiologists half a cent per CT head that they report. And uh, yeah, he's going to make a ton of money. <laughs> it's just a, a joke ragging on Spotify <laughs> there. Uh, no, I mean, I think it's is good. You know, from what I've read, the startup seems to be offering next day diagnostics with some, you know, fancy stuff on on the background. I think to make that more efficient. But we're seeing we help a lot of companies that are offering things like this to onboard and verify their clinicians, and we're seeing a big growth um, across radiologists, radiographers, people that are looking to. Um, help with diagnostics and investigations. I think of the you know seven million odd patients that are awaiting treatment in the UK. Many of the, the those treatments are sort of behind diagnostic intervention, right? So it's um, or di- diagnostic investigation. So I think there's uh, a huge uh, pent up need for treatment for this. Obviously, the number of diagnostics we can do increases year on year um, as well. So. I think it's a great market opportunity to be going after. It's a nice confluence, I think, of things that uh, people need, patients need, um, where there's good tech that can, you know, potentially improve the unique economics and make this um, more affordable. So, you know, the AI reporting of, uh, there's been loads of great research and and commercializations of AI reporting of of radiology. Um, So, yeah, it seems like a, a good Venn diagram overlap of tech, capital availability, patient demand. Um, and uh, yeah, though I was sort of joking about Spotify, um, <laughs> maybe not rewarding musicians as as well as they could do. 
Um, you know, the founder's clearly um, been at the helm of one of the most successful startups of the last 20 years, I guess. Um, so I'm, I'm keen to know what it will do. And the fact that it's secret just makes me want to find out more. <laughs> exactly. Um, and Sift did actually go into this and based on documents and a trip to their physical location, they've pieced together a picture of X vision for the future of healthcare. Um, but it mentions all the right things, you know, non-invasive diagnostics, preventative medicine. He's invested about 6 million euros into it. Um, it's interesting. And, and like you said, I think Yes, he's been part of one of the most successful startups of recent times. But I think, interestingly, a startup that has truly, in the true sense of the word, disrupted an industry. And I've actually yeah. interviewed, I would say, a disproportionate amount. So I've, I've interviewed probably five people on my, on my other podcast, the Health Tech Podcast, I've interviewed five entrepreneurs, founders of health tech companies that have raised money and done very well because, well, in part anyway, not certainly not because, but in part, these five people had a job in the music industry and saw it get disrupted. And they believed that disruption was possible because of what they'd seen in the music industry. Wow. And in part, that gave them the confidence to think that healthcare could also be disrupted. And this idea that they had based on what they'd seen, they've then gone and actually followed through with. Now, you know, I might be overplaying the value of being in the music industry, you know, leading to that in some way, but it didn't not have an impact. You know, they were part of that and saw that it was possible. It was something that they mentioned in their, in their uh, introductions and stories and things like that. So I think, yeah, for someone like Daniel Ek that has success not only the belief that it's possible, but knows, you know, knows how to disrupt an industry. That's not to say that healthcare will be any easier than the music industry, um, if if not the opposite. But I think to have to have ambition and to have belief and to have almost mm. like that level. I mean, founders in some way all have to be a little bit delusional and have to be somewhat sort of ruthlessly ambitious to, I mean, most are kind of, I think, you know, talking about myself, even you, you don't really realize the scale of what you're about to do until you're sort of part way through it and realize that oh, I've actually climbed some mountains and, and only stopped now to talk about it. Perhaps, perhaps Daniel, Ek, when he's trying to do this in healthcare, will think something similar. I don't know. Perhaps he'll be wildly successful and we get non-invasive diagnostics and preventative medicine at scale. I don't know. But I do think it's exciting. I think it is exciting to see someone like Daniel Ek involved in healthcare. If we see him never invest in healthcare again and run a mile, I think we should probably be concerned. I think if he ends up with a portfolio and does this massive M&A exercise and bundles them all together in this amazing preventative health conglomerate that uh, saves us all and gives us all um, 10 extra years on the planet, that would be wonderful. It might end up somewhere in the middle. Uh, but yeah, I, th I, think it, I, th I think it is a really interesting story. I, yeah, I agree with you. I mean, he's, you know, Spotify's a pretty incredibly disruptive company, you know, disruptive in the same way that Netflix was to Blockbuster. Absolutely. And I can't think of an analogy for how they'd be able to do the same thing in diagnostics in that, you know, Spotify essentially had realized that there's no marginal cost of producing additional units once you've got your IP, if you like, your your songs as an artist. And so if you can make the distribution digital, then you can completely... Um, change the reimbursement model in a way that I think hasn't been amazing for artists typically. You know, I think that figure I looked at for half a cent per stream is not great compared to what you get on a, 
a radio play or from selling a, an album back in the day. So I do feel sorry for those artists that sort of just missed the last wave of everyone buying CDs or people buying CDs for their mum, which I think is how you get really rich. Um, so uh, I don't know how, I don't think that there's an equivalent in diagnostics. You know, it's not that people have this IP and there's no marginal cost to provide it. The radio reporting radiologists and radiographers um, have to get the patient in and they have to you know report on the the data that's brought back i suppose actually you could do it with those ai based reporting tools as they become more and more commercialized but it may be that his ambitions aren't hubristic i don't know if you remember mark zuckerberg in 2016 saying that he was going to cure all diseases within 10 years sorry all all diseases this century which is you know it's quite the aim isn't it to cure all diseases not even cure most diseases which i think most people will be happy to solve most diseases. Um, uh, yeah, you know, you don't hear him talk about that a great deal anymore. Um, no. And so I hope Daniel isn't going to bite off more than he can chew. Awesome. Kit, thank you so much for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure for uh, for all of your insights. Before we let you go, credentially, tell us what's going on. What are you hoping for the future? Have you got any wild Daniel Ek plans mm. to uh, M&A the whole preventative medicine industry? Uh, and save us all. <laughs> yeah, no. What would I? What would my hubris be after it? You know, credentially uh, has a staggering exit. But I think probably uh, solve world hunger. Um, mm, yeah, absolutely. Forever, that would probably be all. Or give us access to unlimited free energy. I think that would be useful for humanity. So probably just do those both. Actually, probably <laughs> quite simple. Knowing nothing about either industry. So no, what's credentially doing? So yeah, you know, our mission really is. Uh, somewhat more pedestrian than solving all world uh, diseases. <laughs> um, we want to make it so that every clinician has a really fast way to join a, a provider. Um, typically, that takes three to six months. Um, we've got it down to about five days. Uh, we want to keep getting that down, and we want to make sure that uh, everyone that's currently doing this work manually, um, or you know, dragging people in, making them sign a load of documents in person. Uh, that they stop doing that because it's really annoying and it's inefficient for patients and it makes their business more expensive and, and higher risk actually because you can't automate the rechecking of all of that information. So um, at the moment, we're um, working with some really exciting companies. So uh, yeah, we're working with some uh, big names that we'll be announcing shortly and we have found, you know, we've we've got a really great team. Um, we've got we're working with really great companies and we've been very lucky. We've got amazing investors as well. So um, think things are good for us. Um, we're continuing to grow across three markets, so the UK, Canada, and United States. And yeah. Kit, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. For anybody that wants to grab all of the stories uh, and links to them that you've heard today, you can head to healthtechpigeon.com. That will get you onto the newsletter. It goes out every Sunday. It's the One Minute Health Tech Roundup. Uh, yeah, have a read of all of those stories in full. We've also got some podcasts for you to listen to and some jobs and opportunities in there as well and probably a couple of events and things like that that are going on in health tech. Thanks, everybody. We will see you next week. 